Before Shopify, were you wondering, where my sales at? Now you're selling with Shopify, the global commerce platform supercharging your selling. You have no problem selling online, in person, on social media, and beyond. Gary, easy on the cha-ching. <clears throat> oh, sorry, but my Shopify sales are through the roof. Start selling with Shopify today and discover how millions of businesses around the world use Shopify to ignite their selling. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash listen. Shopify.com slash listen. This is Pretty Much Pop, a culture podcast where ideas don't so much fight each other to the death as lounge casually around each other making jokes and eating caramel corn. Today we're discussing The Hunger Games franchise by Suzanne Collins and their film adaptations as prompted by the recent publication of the prequel The Ballad of Songbirds and Snakes. I'm Mark Linsenmeyer, and my strategy in The Hunger Games would be to lick all the other tributes and give them my future aids. I'm Erica Spires, and I think I would just try to charm as many of the sponsors as possible so I would get all of the gifts and just hoard them and make sure nobody else got to eat. And I'm Brian Hurt, checking in from District 9 and 3 quarters. And I'd win the Hunger Games using, um, I'm going to say a Patronus spell. Wrong series, Brian. No, we're going to talk about Harry Potter today. We need to. We do? It's the anti-Hunger Games, which is to say it's awesome. Are you coming in with a... uh... I'm coming in hot. Guns blazing. So, had we done one on a book, actually? Sure. In the past, I can't think of a book that we read. Stephen King felt like a book. It did, because we had all read some Stephen King, and we all, like, prepped sure. for it in that way. But I don't think, yeah, I, don't, I guess we haven't done, a, like, a full-on book. So, we chose a book. I'm going to say it is sixth grade reading level to be our very first book club discussion. Way to go, everybody. Hey. Handmaid's Tale. Who read it first? Oh, it might have been me. I think Erica just asked a loaded question. <laughs> did I recommend the book or did I just read it first? You said you were reading it and I was like, hey, I'm going to read it too. And then we decided, why not talk about it? Why did you read it in the first place? I'm reading this book, raves Brian Hurt. <laughs> <laughs> it was available through my local library as an audiobook. And just for doing stuff around the house, it's nice to have books that I know go down pretty smooth, even though I didn't really love the second or third book in the original series. But I figured this is probably something that will be made into a movie, and I'm probably going to want to read the book at some point, so I might as well put it in my ears now. Can we just say, not a great book, A Ballad of Songbirds and Snakes. Not a great book, but enjoyable. Thoughts? Not a great book and not that enjoyable. Mark? I I did get into it. Reading the beginning, I probably would have stopped, but having invested already into this and knowing that we were doing this, and yeah, I let myself get sucked in. And granted, the last third of the book, again, I kind of stopped and I read other things. There was a section in the middle where I couldn't put it down, but that did not carry all the way to the end. That's, I think, by design. I agree, Mark. What is this book? I think we don't need to describe the Hunger Games to anyone who has gotten this far into the 21st century, but in terms of what the sequel is, someone want to give a relatively spoiler-free summary of The Ballad of Songbirds and Snakes? Do it, Erica. So The Ballad of Songbirds and Snakes is a prequel about one President Snow before he became President Snow, when he was still a school child in the capital, a teenager, I should say. It takes a look at his life pre-war, the war that we always hear about in the Hunger Games, the war that caused the Hunger Games to start, the uprising. And 
shows what capital life was like during that time, the difficulty of reconstruction, and how that shaped his life into the kind of person he is today. This takes place during the 10th annual Hunger Games, and the tribute from, wouldn't you guess it, District 12, is a lovely songbird named Lucy Gray Baird, and he is assigned to be her mentor, per se. Like At this time, uh, they were trying to have their own capital teens be the mentors. He becomes uh, a little bit entangled with the girl, and he has to question what he values. So it's a little bit like the older books in that we have part of it that is the story is surrounding the Hunger Games, and part of it is actually taking place in the arena. And we should say a little about what we're going to spoil, what we're going to not spoil. I think about the first third of the book where they're setting up the premise is fair game for us, but beyond that, we will save for our after show. Sounds good. So I don't think it's a crime then to reveal that not only is there a sort of and then there were none thing about the tributes as there is in a normal Hunger Games, but about the sponsors themselves. So he and his cohorts, because this is still a war-torn area and various other things are going on, there are chances for even his classmates to be knocked off. So he is in personal danger, and I'm not sure (laughs) if I want to say any more. What do you mean about he is in personal danger? Do you mean of not winning, or do you mean... His life, in multiple ways. Not only because of it's a high-pressure situation, that if his tribute doesn't win, he's afraid his place in the capital is very insecure. He comes from a very rich family that has fallen on hard times. All their wealth was wiped out when District 13 was destroyed. And so it's really just a pretense that he's able to even participate in this and attend the fancy school that he does. So there's that sort of pressure, but then there's also a very real physical danger, both inside and outside the context of the arena. And there's just talk of people cannibalizing each other during these hard times, and just everybody in the capital even is very hungry at this point. So you're meant to sympathize with this character in a way that certainly you wouldn't later, because he's actually, his situation is not entirely different than, you know, that of Katniss and her cohorts in the original story. I was reminded of the Star Wars prequels, necessarily, right? We have this Darth Vader character who we then go back to see how he became Darth Vader. Not that that's the only time we've ever been given a prequel story where the unambiguous bad guy, not an anti-hero, but a full-on antagonist, were given the treatment of, well, how did they become this? And we are presented with a sympathetic figure early on of, Corollianus Snow. And I don't know that he's ever presented as all that likable, but he is, I think, someone we're supposed to sympathize with as the protagonist, at least early on. My interest in the book, in part, was whether he was going to really show his full stripes by the end, or if this was going to be the start of a new trilogy of some sort where he was something of a hero the whole way through and would take longer to have a downfall. I won't reveal that, but that's not that much of a payoff for a character I don't care that much about. I think Corolliana Snow was, or President Snow in the trilogy, the original trilogy was a painted with fairly broad strokes, not that well developed. I mean, wasn't that close to the camera compared to other characters we knew. I didn't need to know more about him. And boy, by the time this book was over, I have to admit, I listened to it. And I was trying to remember how his name was spelled. And sure enough, you can't spell Corollianus without anus. So we would just get that in at some point. So that is how they pronounced it on the, in the audiobook. Yes, it is. As opposed to Coriolanus or something more dignified sounding. Yeah, I wasn't sure if it was Lanus or Lanus. In rewatching the films, uh, 
the character Finnick O'Dare does call him Coriolanus. So I think that's fair game. Or we can just call him Corio. Corio, right. And I've spoken to several authors about the audio versions of their books, and a lot of them have no input at all and say that even how names are pronounced, they're not even consulted. So who knows? Not that Suzanne Collins, she has a lot of juice. I imagine she might have some input if she wanted. But who knows? Brian, you're saying that this book doesn't need to exist, (laughs) which definitely some of the online reviews I was reading were, this character is not interesting enough. What do we think about the characterization? I actually think maybe it was richer than some of the online reviews give it credit for. Well, if I had to expunge some book out of existence because it didn't fit with my headcanon, I guess it would be Ghost Set a Watchman by Harper Lee, so I'm not going to reserve it for this. I don't care enough about the original trilogy to be offended by this, so I guess maybe I'm not the right person to ask. What about you guys? I'm a fan. I was a fan of the originals. I couldn't put them down. Saw all the movies in the theater, have the t-shirt, wearing the braid. It's not a pure fun story. I really enjoy the world of The Hunger Games, and I was surprised how much I enjoyed re-watching the films in preparation for this. I hadn't watched them again since I had seen them originally. I enjoyed them a lot again. So even though this particular book wasn't, in my opinion, nearly as good as the other books, and I didn't feel like it was necessary, it was a nice little break for me during the coronavirus, you know? So I did want to figure out, though, like, why did Suzanne Collins think it was time to do this after so many years have passed since the trilogy? And I did come across this from uh, the Scholastic website when they were interviewing her, which was, um, here's how it works now. I have two worlds, the Underland, the world of the Underland and Chronicle series, and Pan Am the world of the Hunger Games. I use both of them to explore elements of just war theory. When I find a related topic that I want to examine, then I look for the place it best fits. The state of nature debate of the Enlightenment period naturally lent itself to a story centered on Coriolanus Snow. She wanted to look at his childhood. She wanted to see more about how someone becomes like this person and whether or not she drew from current events and how she feels Maybe she was wrestling with that. Maybe she's wrestling with how can people seem so callous and what happens in somebody's childhood that could cause that. And I certainly see some parallels here to even why so many of us, you know, we did that episode about a year ago about serial killers, right? And Coriolanus certainly has no trouble killing children. I think we do find it fascinating to figure out what makes somebody tick and what gets them to the point that they think this is necessary or makes them callous enough to do it. And it's an interesting exploration into the human psyche. I don't disagree with any of that. And I don't fault her wanting to tell that story. I think telling it in the Hunger Games world, in Penham, and as a prequel, I'm a little cynical about the choice. If she had done it in another world she created, there's no way it would have sold as well. Having it be a Hunger Games thing and having some obvious little bits of fan service to the fans of Katniss Everdeen. I think having the outcome known is always the possible trap with prequels. We know what becomes of this character. And so there is a fundamental lack of surprise. It's not all about being surprised, but President Snow does not get a redemptive arc. We know how he ends. He's fallen upon by a pack of, he dies totally ignominiously in, in the third book. And uh, yeah, we're totally spoiling the prequels, right? I mean, the, the original trilogy is, I think this would have been more fertile ground if she had started a new world somehow. But I'm not going to tell her what she should needs to do creatively. And 
it's not even real cynicism. I think it was a lost opportunity, possibly, to give us something new rather than going back to this pretty dry well, I thought. Do either of you feel like reading the book and then going back and watching the, well, I can't call it a trilogy because they made that into four films, and going back and watching those four films again, did it change your perspective at all about the character of Snow? Yes, I think that the book, the new book was effective in showing that he actually thinks he is doing the right thing insofar as there is a right thing because the world to him is this nasty, brutish, in short, this fundamental chaos and which both on a social and a personal level, there is a literal fight to the death and the Hunger Games when whole nations go to war, you might wonder, man, this is just the arrogance of some particular kings, some particular leaders. Why don't Bush and Saddam Hussein go fight it out with a fist fight and we'll decide it based on that? <laughs> you know, in fact, in our last episode, our guest, Anthony, even gave a quick uh, defense of in Black Panther, them having this tribal fighting as an alternative to war, that if the world is inherently violent, if you can somehow, through whatever means, constrict that so that it is decided in some less all-out war way, whether it's through this just war theory, like, you know, we will not attack civilians, we will have the Geneva Convention, we will have only, so you know, these are all sort of artificial things that there's a precarious balance. Anybody can, any side can sort of violate those things at any time, but that'll just escalate things in an undesirable way. So he really thinks that in order for there to be peace, he needs to have control, which means he will personally assassinate any of his rivals and he will be absolutely ruthless in disciplining his immediate staff, but also that he didn't create the Hunger Games, but he is objecting to the whole idea through most of this prequel. But you can see by the end why he would continue that and sort of get fully behind it. This is where we point people to the classic Star Trek episode, A Taste of Armageddon, where computers decide how battles come out and people just go into their death pods rather than actually fighting the battles. And by gamifying war, it just means it never ends. And sure enough, 75 Hunger Games later, they're still battling each other. So good job, President Snow. I am actually surprised that she decided to do a prequel instead of adding onto the series because we are left at the end of the Hunger Games, uh, at the end of Mockingjay, not knowing really what's going to happen. I mean, we can guess that it's probably going to be yet another 75 years until we have another war, right? Until something happens with these factions. But to me, that would have been, I don't know, maybe she's planning on adding on to them. And so she wanted to do a prequel first. Who's to say? But I think there's so much world building that needs to happen post Hunger Games original series. Like Katniss goes back home and there's this brand new democracy that's created, but we don't really know how effective that democracy is going to be and what it's going to look like. The best we get is Plutarch's speech. Now, I know that Philip Seymour Hoffman died around this time. Does anybody remember in the books, I could have looked this up, I suppose, that scene at the end when Haymitch is reading a letter from Plutarch to Katniss about what's going to happen and how he got her a ride out of the Capitol. Is that originally a scene between the two of them? There are multiple... So it turned into a letter because he passed away. Right. I'm thinking that I would have liked to have reread a little of the third book According to one of the, at least one of the online sources I was looking at, that the whole thing is very cynical. 
Of course, the way it was going to be set up is that the District 13 chief, President Coyne, was basically just going to become the new President Snow and reinstitute the Hunger Games. And Katniss puts a stop to that. And it's implied in the movies that, okay, well, one of these other generals that seemed a very unobjectionable, nice character is going to be, was voted to become the new president. And it's going to be a democracy from now on and everything's going to be. But it's not clear to me that that's actually the message in the books, that maybe they're really, Collins has a more cynical take on the whole thing, that even with a revolution, you know, it's still going to be maybe not exactly the same, maybe not the Hunger Games again, but the way power works, it's not going to be a wonderful democracy the way you might think. So yeah, Erica, I think you're right that there's room to explore if she really did have that negative attitude on what progress she actually thinks is possible. And if there's going to be backsliding, that was a perhaps unwelcome thing for folks in the Star Wars subsequent sequels where you think like evil has been triumphed in episode six and everything should be nice from now on. But of course, the way that political movements actually work and power vacuums and things, there should be further threats, maybe not with super death stars and exactly this, the way it came out. But Right. We were watching um, John Oliver the other day and he was talking about how in our history books, we're all taught that it's just been an upward trajectory towards success in America, right? Like we had slavery and then like we got better after emancipation. And then, yeah, we had the, you know, the Civil Rights Act, we had some unrest there, but then like we've gotten better and better and better, right? So rather than teaching our kids that there's a pendulum that swings both ways and sometimes it goes one way, you know, part of the time it goes one way, part of it, and then it corrects itself. We have instead been taught that like things just get better and we're beyond all that now. And I do think that's an important lesson for kids to learn when they're reading these books. Hopefully that is something they can pick up is that it's not so simple and there's progress, and then there's regression, and then there's somewhere in the middle that it comes back to, right? There's Hegel's dialectic. So I think it would be a worthy look into getting into what happens post the 75th Hunger Games. Now that we've seen before, let's see what happens after. And maybe this is Katniss's grandchildren. If I may offer an alternative viewpoint on that, because you mentioned world building, Erica. You're such a hater, Brian. Well, this is where I reveal that I actually like the first book a lot. I thought the first book was something of lightning in a bottle, and the world didn't make a ton of sense, but it was compelling, and it was this bite-sized thing, and I thought it worked great. And it wasn't really until we got going with the second book as we started to really understand how the politics and, I should say, the geopolitics of Panem worked and the warring factions, and then it really comes to fruition with Mockingjay, it just makes less and less sense to me. It seems like this is spread out over North America, but the districts are somehow have the population of a town of 20,000 people. That and, is weird. <laughs> and there are these beautiful maglev trains that still manage to run through a wilderness that is or maybe isn't spoiled for more. I kept wanting to like these books as much as I liked the first one, and it just was a decaying function of enjoyment for me. And it, that, together with the bummer cynicism of, which I don't disagree with, but it just made it less fun also, because it was the first book was so personal about just Katniss. And I guess by the end, she ends on a very positive note, her personal life, even if things are looking like they're just going to be as bad as ever in Panem. I, I just don't want her to come back to it, in part because I'm going to read it and then I'm going to be all mad about it. <laughs> Didn't you like the fact that in Catching Fire that there were repercussions? 
you know, we thought she won the game, she's going to be free. But no, she has to actually then continue to do this eternal feigning her love for PETA and continue to serve the propaganda purposes that the games were supposed to serve really through the rest of her life. I thought that was a, yeah, that is something that in this situation should happen and was sort of a brave choice to like, we're going to just insist on that and live with it. Actually having her in another Hunger Games, that seemed a like, oh, come on. And we have to have a Hunger Games in every book because we have to have, oh, the Mockingjay, it's like a Hunger Games. They've set up the whole city with these traps, so it's like the whole city is the arena as they're invading it. Like, that seemed just... I don't want to say fan service, but... Uh, <laughs> yeah, it was, yeah. It's the rule of making a sequel to an incredibly popular book because there's going to be a faction that says you're just rehashing it. It's not different enough. And then there's going to be another faction that says, you changed it. This isn't what I liked about Hunger Games. You know, Give me Hunger Games again and make it different, but don't make it too different. And she walked the line, and I think for people who wanted to see a Hunger Games in every book, of course they got one of a sort, definitely in the second and sort of in the third and even in the prequel. And I don't know what kind of future books she could give us, Erica, but there's going to be Hunger Games in those also, I imagine, and more kids killing kids. It'll be a peaceful time, but they'll all have like terrariums and their turtles will have Hunger Games. It's just really stretched to the puppy Hunger Games, you know, some, some sort of variation. Yeah, I haven't really thought about that. I didn't. That's not something I would want. I wouldn't want another Hunger Games. What would lead you to think she won't give us one? My own naivete, Brian. <laughs> These, to me, feel definitely like YA novels, right? And yet it had a pretty huge following of people who watched these films, at least, even if they didn't read the books. I know a ton of people who were my age or older who were reading the books, too, and loved them. Do you think they're successful young adult novels? And then the problem is more so that we're adults talking about these books as adults from an adult's perspective. Why are they young adult novels other than their reading level? I think it's the insistence on that damn love story and the love triangle. I just don't care. Reading the books, I felt like maybe it was a little more effective. Watching the movies, I feel like they're just hitting it over the head. And I'm like, I just don't care. She's in a war right now. Who cares about who she loves? Which is actually why I kind of love the ending of the book slash movie when she decides to kill President Coyne. She has no idea what's going to happen to her. She's not making a choice based on which boy she wants to be with. It's about the world and making a difference in the world and sacrificing herself, which somebody tells her that, right? They're like, you have to be ready to sacrifice yourself. Is it Joanna? You don't think it's just her. She wants revenge on Snow, but she already knows that Snow's going to get his comeuppance anyway. It's Coin who actually is the one that is responsible for killing her sister. So it is a personal, it's not a step out into the a larger geopolitical view. It is, no, I'm going to actually kill the person that I am right now burning with hatred for. That's not how I saw it, but maybe that's true. Maybe it is just her revenge fantasy. What do you guys think? I'm going to build on something Mark mentioned to me years ago on maybe why this is a young adult novel. It's because nobody poops. <laughs> what? Mark, at one point, I think when you gave me a Paul Oster novel and you had some comment about how in books intended for younger people, nobody actually had bodily functions. The Shannara books, I believe, is what I had in mind. All these Lord of the Rings rip-off things where they're traveling across the country, like, you got to address how people relieve themselves in the woods. Yeah. So when the dwarves go down the river in barrels in Lord of the Rings and they should come out covered in their own feces and don't, that's how we know that was intended for young people. <laughs> I think having a young or youngish protagonist, having 
that character be some combination of misunderstood and feeling like or having it be revealed that they are special in some way. I think that is the thing that drives so many young adult novels. And you know, I mentioned Harry Potter at the start. I think that is the thing that really gets Harry Potter going. This idea that I'm a magical kid in a muggle world and this universality of kids not really being sure that they are unique and not feeling understood. And we get some of that from even in this prequel novel with Snow. He is kind of a singularity among his peers and is in this special place. It's hard knowing what who he is to, to really relate to him as a character, the way that Katniss is very relatable as a character. I no longer know if that criterion that I put out 20 plus years ago would even make the difference in young adult novels now. Like if you took this bout of songbirds and snakes and you add some sexual abuse and you add references to when he masturbates and things like that, like that could still be just reflecting on the 13 reasons why. I feel like with our standards for what younger people can be exposed to are quite different at this point in the last 20 years. Mark, I was being really specific. <laughs> it's not about sex. It's about bodily, it's about pooping and whether characters have to go to the bathroom. Do some searches through electronic versions of these books and see what references there are to Rue pooping out of the tree or whatever. <laughs> well, and just like they made Pride and Prejudice and Zombies to add zombies to that book, I, I think we could do Pride and Prejudice and pooping and just that story, but all the times they go to the bathroom. Oh, you and your potty humor. I'm done. So is there, I mean, clunky prose. Do we want to like read a, man, I don't know. Oh, please. Have I hope open semi-randomly here. Let me just, but I found this last night. That's, we said his name is Sejanus. Sejanus? Sejanus is how they pronounced it in the audiobook. But again. So Sejanus and Coriolanus have just had an experience where they were feeding their tributes. Sejanus looked down at the empty backpack by his feet. Ever since the reaping, I keep imagining I'm one of them. This is uh, Coriolanus's sort of friend, but his family comes from the districts, and so he's a mentor, but he's the sympathetic character, the one who actually has a moral conscience. Coriolanus almost laughed before he realized Sejanus was serious. That seems like an odd pastime. Can't help it. Sejanus's voice dropped so low, Coriolanus had to strain to hear it. They read my name, I walk to the stage, now they've cuffed me, now they're hitting me for no reason, now I'm on the train, in the dark, starving, alone except for kids I'm supposed to kill. Now I'm on display with all these strangers bringing their children to stare at me through the bars. The sound of rusty wheels turning their attention to the monkey house. A dozen or so bales of hay came bursting out of the chute and rolled into a heap on the cage floor. Look, that must be my bed, said Sejanus. It isn't going to happen to you, Sejanus, Coriolanus told him. It could have, though. Easily, if we weren't so rich now, he said. I would be back in District 2, maybe still in school and maybe in the mines, but definitely in the reaping. And it continues. So just like that little dramatic moment of this could happen to me. Hey, I'll incorporate that into my fantasy. That would be my bed. Like it just seemed, come on, <laughs> not the most elegant of techniques. Definitely not. No, I'm not a huge fan of this book. There's so many times that I giggled to myself over either dialogue like that, how obvious they were being with their references, or just the names of the characters. Sometimes I get embarrassed by the names of the characters and how silly they are. Not too different from the first three books in that respect. No, no, it's not. I read all three in a row. I guess I discovered these right when the third had come out. And so I read all three of them. And then I remember afterward picking up a Ray Bradbury. It might have been The Illustrated Man. And I couldn't read it. The sentences were too complicated. 
and adverbs everywhere. And I know Ray Bradbury isn't everyone's thing. I think the folds in my brain started smoothing out as I was reading these books, and I needed to have some more complicated words going into them. But, you know, these were clearly written for younger people than us. Even if you look at the first three books in particular, every chapter is the exact same length. The books are practically the exact same length. They were written to be read as an assignment. Read chapters two and three tomorrow. And effective writing. I'm not really criticizing it for you know what the intended audience is, but looking back, I kind of wish I had just stopped at one in some ways. What's the difference in watching cartoons that are made for kids but adults can enjoy and reading a book made for kids that adults can enjoy. I feel like adults are shamed from reading YA, but not so much from watching Disney movies. Partially because watching a movie is a communal experience. And so maybe if you're an adult watching a lot of Disney movies by yourself, you would get that kind of shame, but nobody really knows when you're just talking to them about Tangled or Frozen, whether you, there were children involved <laughs> that got you. <laughs> right, and no one is shamed by reading Harry Potter to their kids. Like Reading to your kids is great. Reading Harry Potter on your own, I have no problem with it, obviously. And I think the mainstream nature of nerd culture now, maybe none of this is really all that shameful. Reading these books to your kids, I don't know. <laughs> Reading <laughs> The Hunger Games. And then he slashed him through the eye with a giant poke. <laughs> <laughs> I can remember walking down an airplane and seeing a number of these books out. You know, back when they came out, that was before everyone was reading ebooks and they were buying books in airports. And sure, people were just reading the Hunger Games books on airplanes. My, my father even said to me that women would just talk to him when he was traveling if he got out a Hunger Games book. He said if he was looking to pick up chicks, that would be how he would do it, is just get out the Hunger Games. <laughs> I'm quite sure he used the phrase pickup chicks. The selection I just read, I think, is perfectly serviceable TV dialogue. Doom Patrol, I was just watching. Like, it's entirely the kind of thing that I would hear on many, many shows. Did you think the films were actually good? I also watched The 100, that Netflix, I don't know, it's a Canadian TV show, similar post apocalyptic kind of setting with teens. And that feels, even though you know it has a reasonable budget, there's something that feels cheap and aimed at teens about that that makes me feel a little guilty for watching that. Is it just the fact that there's a big budget and better actors is the only reason that the movies don't feel like that, but they're actually just as trashy, just as teen-oriented? I'm not sure of the answer to that, but I, I've been thinking about the same thing. I think the movies are actually really overall pretty good, and I think part of that is because they got, for the most part, really great actors. I think they cast it really well for the most part. If you look at the very first film on IMDb, it's got a 7.2. This is the one that was directed by Gary Ross. With a lot of shaky cam. With a lot of shaky cam, which some people didn't like. I thought the score was really good. James Newton Howard does the score. Then we have Catching Fire, and that's Francis Lawrence came in on that one. And he directed all the rest, yep. Yep. And that one got a 7.5, so that was actually perceived as overall critically a better film. And as of now, I finished watching Mockingjay Part 2 last night. Oscar-winning actors, aplenty in these. Right? I was, I was trying to, I don't even know if I have them all, but it was, well, there's you know Jennifer Lawrence and Julianne Moore and Mahershala Ali and Philip Seymour Hoffman. Some of these are... I don't want to say throwaway characters, but it's right. It's crazy how much talent there is. Jeffrey Wright. 
I didn't even know really who Mahershala Ali was when I watched these. And now I'm like, holy shit, he was in like Jeffrey Wright had already done a lot of stuff. But like now, like we all know him, of course, from Westworld. I mean, of course, Donald Sutherland. Regarding the movies, I think I generally enjoyed them more than the books, or certainly the second movie. The third, I think making it into two movies really makes both of them slow. Mockingjay Part 1 and 2, I think, could have been a three-hour movie rather than two two-hour movies, or maybe even a two-and-a-half-hour movie. It just seemed undisciplined in its slowness. I don't care enough to argue about that. I would rather waste my breath on why The Hobbit should not have been broken into three movies. Yeah, I wonder how much it had to do with really good actors versus screenplay adaptation. I watched these with my kids. So I I hadn't seen the last movie. And I think it's because of Mockingjay Part 1 that it ends in such a way and it has been kind of dragged out that you're just like, enough, I don't need more of this. And the other movie wasn't out at the time. When the fourth movie showed up on streaming service, I just didn't even care. I didn't watch it until this week. But actually seeing them in a row, I appreciated it more and I liked the second half more in terms of just the amount of action. And talking about these with my kids, the things that made some parts of the second half of the last movie not land as well is actually because they didn't have time to do the characters in as much depth as we're in the books. <laughs> so this is ironic that this is already dragged out. It already feels too long, but yet it would have been more dramatically effective. Some of the things about the progress that her sister was making and why you should care about this character over and above the little affection that she gains from us in the very beginning of the first book and the little things that she has or Gail's progression of becoming more of a militant and eventually going too far and losing Katniss's affections, his direction in that. And just some of the characters being killed off, like apparently in the book when Finnick dies, like it's a big thing and you care and Peta has made a cake, a wedding cake for him and his wife and just all this side stuff in the books that couldn't make it into the movies by necessity that makes, you know, that's kind of interesting, but like it's not as gut-wrenching as it should have been. When I played the end of The Last of Us 2, I was much more gut-wrenched having spent all these time with these characters. Oh, no spoilers. You can just imagine. <laughs> He's not going to play it. Hey, I'm almost done with the first one. I'm just saying, like, just given the theme of the game and violence begetting violence, like, that was more dramatically effective to me than anything near the end of Hunger Games in the films. Another thing that strikes me in the films as definitely feeding that YA audience is they're part of the films that look very realistic and part of them that are super sensationalized. Like, things in the Capitol, I feel like that's fan service to the young kids. To a certain effect, people look like clowns and the bright colors that are used. I feel like if you were taking this adaptation and making it strictly for adults, the whole world would be pretty grim. Fancy, sure, but not like a bright pop of blue amongst all of the gray. So it still felt at times that with the the love story and a lot of crying from Josh Hutcherson made it feel a bit more teenager. <laughs> In the sheer nature of... The Hunger Games as a spectacle, the arena of people killing people, there's a reason it's more fun to watch a baseball game than hear about it on the radio. Right? You want to see what's going on. And there's a lot of action in these books, and you can describe it all, but to see that realized, to see the arena, the woods on fire and fireballs coming at her, it's just, you don't quite get that across, I think, in the book in quite the same way. Whereas books that are just talky and dialogue the whole time, 
maybe it translates a little bit more, or it doesn't need to translate to screen in order to become fully realized in quite the same way. Yeah, I often feel like action movies based on books are just supplementary illustrations. And I think even just hearing was an interview with Stan Collins that she sort of sees it as the same way, that the book is still the thing uh, if you want to get the whole story, but wouldn't it be cool to actually see the fireballs? Okay, so let's spend several million dollars making the fireballs. And so it's just kind of an extra bit of service for people who already like the books, which seems to defeat the purpose of having a movie that has suspense. You don't know what's going to happen. At least there's a certain section, and I think I would include this. I don't know, what do you, what do you think? Do you think folks would enjoy it more if they saw the movies first or, or read the books first? I don't know. I'm going to have Erica answer that. No, I don't know, because I read the books first, and I also really enjoyed the movies. And I think that, to me, is successful, because it's really typically hard to enjoy a film after you've been a big fan of the books. So whether or not it was because they stuck close enough to the books, or because they were imaginative enough that it added something that the books didn't have, like I got more visuals and I got to like actually put more faces to things, like... Both sets were successful, and maybe if I went back and read them, I wouldn't be as impressed as I initially was when I had the element of surprise, but I do know that going back and watching the films, I enjoyed it a lot. And I was watching it on YouTube TV with all of the commercials, so it took a long time, and yet I still felt like all of it was enjoyable. I didn't get bored. That says a lot, I think, especially on a second watch of something when a lot of time has passed. What about you, Mark? Yeah, I overall thought the movie experience was fine, was good. My kids enjoyed it. Like, particularly the first movies, they were better than I remembered them being, better than I thought they would be in retrospect. But I still feel like that they are properly taken as illustrations of the books, <laughs> just like I was saying. In other words, read the books first. I guess I wanted to touch before we get out of here on just the premise of can you have something that is supposed to be a political book condemning the sensationalism of violence? And yet, of course, the whole reason people watch these are to get sensationalized violence. You're still showing, and it seems even in the movie Gladiator, you get the same thing, a much more artsy, adult-oriented film. But you're still seeing a lot of bitchin' gladiator action, even though the whole point is to say how savage it was that there were gladiators and people that were horrible enough to want to watch them. It's the cards against humanity effect, Mark. I'm above this, so I can participate in it as a spectator, but I'm not glorifying it. I think people can be inconsistent in their approach towards things, and they can appreciate the message and still get caught up in the moment of someone who's kicking ass on screen and not walk away feeling totally conflicted about what their emotions and experiences were. I think that's pretty easy to do. Completely. Agree. Yes, it is messed up <laughs> to enjoy these things at the same time, trying to get the actual message across. It's like the serial killer thing, right? Why is there a podcast called My Favorite Murder? We can say that, well, we're just interested in the story. We want to know about the, more about the human psyche and we want to help solve these murders, but it's called My Favorite Murder. There's something that feels unsettling about that. Just like there, yes, I completely agree. There's something unsettling about glorifying war, especially amongst children, even if the message is the opposite. I think in these films and these books, one of the things that I was once again impressed about is how and why people kill. This does an effective job for me of not having the characters I care about kill out of just pure evil, right? They are usually killing in self-defense, or they also added the element 
not in the 10th Hunger Games, which we see in Ballad of Songbirds and Snakes, but in these other Hunger Games, we see the element of not enough's happening, nobody's killing each other, so we've got to kill them with these outside influences. I think that's something that she probably, I think that was a really smart ad. Yeah, to answer my own question, I think that it should just be a sharp distinction between glorifying real violence and enjoying fictional violence. And I really see those as entirely different. And it, I heard a similar critique of, again, I'll bring up The Last of Us because I just finished it this week, of how can you have something that's supposed to be critiquing the cycle of violence when like the entire minute-to-minute experience of that is, I'm going to stab somebody else in the neck. And I think that it's conflating. Maybe with kids, it's a different thing, but I think adults playing these games or vicariously experiencing violence through films, even very realistic films, or over the top, you know, just way more blood than would be real. I think that that is actually totally okay and healthy in a way that reporting on, I guess Collins was watching footage of the Iraq War, and if you combine a reality show aesthetic with real-life violence, like there is something just unforgivably crude about that, that I think something that is, to various extents, present in our society. I'd heard people watching videos of the police murdering people as being some kind of, again, I'll use the word porn that we brought up in our food thing, basically like a snuff film. Even if, even if the point is to feel moral outrage about it, I just won't watch any of that stuff. It's enough to hear about it. I don't have to physically witness it. That's a line I don't want to cross in terms of, you know, the faces of death, notorious film that when we were kids, like, ooh, if you like Halloween and Friday the 13th, you will love faces of death because it's real death. But like, no, I didn't want to see that. And I still don't want to see that. (laughs) Thank you for saying that. That makes me feel better because it's so easy to think like, well, I like this. So I must, I'm, that must be my violent side. But no, yeah, it's totally different than, even watching a fight. I remember being in like in like high school or middle school and watching fights break out. And there is an excitement that happens because you're like, well, nobody's going to like kill each other, right? They're just having a stupid high school fight. But even just after that first punch is thrown, it's terrifying. I don't want that to happen. Like, I don't actually want to see people get hurt. I like choreographed fights. I have an important question to ask because I know we're getting towards the end here. Team PETA or Team Gale? Mark? Definitely not Team Gale. <laughs> Come on. But agreed. PETA is, it's hard for me to remember exactly how he was presented in the books. And I do appreciate reading some commentaries like, oh, he embodies all these traditionally feminine qualities. And isn't it great that we have a character that gets to win the girl, but yet is not this macho asshole that he's an artist and he's a, so I appreciate all that stuff. But I, I just think that that Josh Hutcherson found his, his niche in Future Man, you know, so I can't see him. I think he's fundamentally a goofy comic actor. And I don't know that I could take him very seriously as this real, not real, this completely (laughs) emotionally distraught. (laughs) Like, you know, you could put as much Frankenstein makeup as you want on him. And it's not going to convince me that he's a hugely damaged person. He's not the caliber actor that Jennifer Lawrence is, who did get the PTSD over. And I'm glad that these films and the books showed us that there is a cost to even witnessing violence. Team PETA, man. You got to. <laughs> that was my long qualified it was so Team PETA. <laughs> oh, I wasn't even looking for an answer to that question, but okay. <laughs> Opposites attract. You know, I actually, I, I was thinking that too, actually, Mark. Maybe it's just super obvious, but it is nice to see that she kind of fills the traditional masculine role and he the traditional feminine one. And 
yet they both show soft and hard sides to each other. I think they complement each other nicely, and it shows how much like actual trauma brings people together. There's your very serious answer, Brian, <laughs> to the very not serious question. Team Cato? I don't know. All right. So there are a few more things I wouldn't mind addressing with this, but we can, we can talk about those in our supporter audio. You can get that at patreon.com slash pretty much pop. Follow us on Facebook. Just reach out to us. Let us know what you think. May the odds be ever in your favor, I guess. <laughs> and the evens as well. Thanks, listeners. Thanks, everybody. Bye. Get more Pretty Much Pop at prettymuchpop.com. Pretty Much Pop is part of the Partially Examined Life Podcast Network, and it's also presented by openculture.com. Oh, 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 O'Reilly. You need parts? O'Reilly Auto Parts has parts. Need them fast? We've got fast. No matter what you need, we have thousands of professional parts people doing their part to make sure you have it. Product availability. Just one part that makes O'Reilly stand apart. The professional parts people. Oh, 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 O'Reilly.